Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker helps book publishers, authors, and premium brands reach an engaged audience of authors, artists, editors, agents, producers, bloggers, media professionals, and readers. Lots of readers. Litbreaker ads appear on The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, HTML Giant, Full Stop, The Nervous Breakdown, Plowshares, and other high quality magazines and blogs featuring literary, arts-oriented, and pop culture content and above-the-fold advertising. Visit litbreaker.com for more information about advertising packages. Litbreaker is also accepting new partner sites in literary, general interest, mystery, creative writing, young adult, romance, and other book genres. That's the Litbreaker Ad Network, an ad network for the literary, arts, and culture web. Be sure to visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's an ad network for smart, interesting, readerly people. Go and advertise on it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. you guys, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This exists inside of your handheld device. This is a series of ones and zeros. Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. It is now December. It is now the month of December, my least favorite month of the year. Uh, everyone is in a kind of holding pattern. Everyone is in a state of uh, low-level paralysis, emotional uh, flux. Most people are feeling a bit more anxious than normal. Daylight is at a minimum up here in the Northern Hemisphere. The darkness is closing in, ladies and gentlemen. Santa Claus is coming. The shopping malls are getting violent and winter is bearing down. Uh, what is happening with me uh, personally? Uh, I just turned my novel in. Uh, it's called The Pinatas. I think that's what it's called. I think I gave it a title. It is called The Pinatas, and I sent it to my agent. And presumably, she is now reading it. So that's fun. I get to now, you know, now I get to sit here and wait for a response, wondering uh, if the thing is any good. Will she like it? Will she be enthused about trying to sell it? Will uh, she suggest enormous wholesale changes that will cause me uh, stress and eat up enormous quantities of my time? 
while fundamentally altering my original vision and so on and so forth. You know, personally, I'm at the point now where I can no longer stand to even look at the thing. And, you know, I know I'm probably going to have to uh, do that as a matter of professional responsibility at some point along the way. There will be an editorial process that will, uh, God willing, unfold. And I, and I, you know, I understand that. But I'm at the point now, emotionally speaking, where I never want to see the book ever again <laughs> for as long as I live. I'm experiencing that sentiment currently. You know, and, and is that too dark? Is, am I too bleak? Do I need an attitude adjustment? Uh, maybe. You know, I, I kind of feel like maybe I've been getting increasingly darker and more cynical in these monologues as we head into winter. Maybe it's because I've been having a, a cold or perhaps I'm experiencing seasonal affective disorder uh, here in Los Angeles of all places. And uh, hey, wh- you know, why not do a quick plug here? It is the holiday season and books do make great gifts. So with that in mind, why not give your friends and family members a copy of Bored, my new book with Justin Benton. It is available now in trade paperback and ebook editions. You can get it wherever books are sold online as well as in some fine independent bookstores. Again, the book is called Bored, B-O-A-R-D. And uh, if that's not to your liking, you can check out some other titles on the TNB Books imprint. That is my independent press. You can get the beautiful anthology, a collection of essays, stories, and poems, all of which deal with the topic of beauty. It was recently named one of the best bathroom books of 2012 by the New York Times. <laughs> I'm not even kidding about that. And it was also named one of the best books of the year, period, by Daily Candy. So uh, go get the beautiful anthology. And uh, other titles on the imprint include Subversia by D.R. Haney, an essay collection of the hard-hitting variety. Uh, there is My Dead Pets Are Interesting by Lenore Zion. That is a humor collection. And uh, how about Paper Doll Orgy, the cartoon collection by Ted McCag. All of these titles are available in trade paperback and ebook editions wherever books are sold online. Uh, my guest today is Eric Raymond. His debut novel, Confessions, from a Dark Wood has just been published by Sator Press, a great uh, indie run by the estimable Ken Bauman. Uh, Sam Lipsight calls this book a rollicking and inventive corporate and cultural satire, and Blake Butler calls it a well-oiled, wise-cracking machine. So I'm very pleased to have Eric on the program. Let's get going with it, shall we? This is Eric Raymond, author of Confessions from a Dark Wood. I am actually sitting in my bedroom, which doubles as my office, uh, looking out my backyard, um, where it is actually a beautiful day out. And I have some water, and there are lots of birds that come into the backyard. So So you're in San Francisco? I am in San Francisco, which is rare to have a backyard, but I happen to have one. Well, that's nice. It's it's really beautiful. It's a a good get, actually. So what part of the city are you in? Actually, I live in Coal Valley. Um, I live uh, sort of... from the upper height, you head towards the hospital, and there's a little neighborhood called Coal Valley, uh, and it's been here for about eight years. So oh. it's, a good, it's a good place. The neighborhood's only been there for eight years? No, no. I've only been here for eight years. The neighborhood actually uh, has been here a long time. There, there are photographs in some of the businesses which show the intersection of Carl and Coal, which are um, you know 40 or 50 years ago, and the intersection looks almost exactly the same. So you know, not too much has changed uh, in Coal Valley in a while. Okay, so you you say you you've been in San Francisco for eight years. Yep, that's right. All right, and so where were you before that? Where are you originally from? I'm originally from Florida. I lived in a town called Deland, Florida, which is uh, sort of in the middle of the state, kind of 
wedged between Disney World and uh, Daytona Beach. Um, so right there on I-4, and there's a university there uh, where my father taught English. So that's that's sort of my stomping ground. So you, I lived you, in the same town. Yeah. You were, you were born to this, son of an English professor. Son of an English professor. It almost sounds like a swear, you know. <laughs> <laughs> son of an English professor. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, it's funny. I was born into it, um, but one of my earliest memories is actually um, my father probably helping with like a third grade assignment where I think he was actually doing the creative writing for me. And so there's this weird sense of plagiarism long about the third grade where I feel like this very thing I'm turning in is actually not my own writing. So. <laughs> it's going to be hard for me to resist doing my daughter's homework, you know? Oh, uh, well, yeah. Well, I, just, just wait a little while. You'll find that it's, uh, <laughs> it's easy to avoid. I have a stepdaughter myself. Oh, you do? How old? Oh, uh, she's 14 now. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, just wait. It's uh, There comes a point around 12, maybe 11. It's like you're expelled from the airlock. Uh, you're sort of jettisoned. You're no longer, you're no longer welcome uh, as, the, as the parent. So. Oh, my God. I'm Get so, ready for that, buddy. Yeah, I'm already dreading it. She, you know, she's, like, really sweet right now. She's two, and, you know, she always wants, yeah. to, be, she always wants to be around us, and it's just a, it's a great age, and then eventually it's going to get to the point where she just, you know. Like the, the the way that I always put it is that it's just a slow process of getting fired from the most important job you've ever right. had. Right, <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. That that's pretty much it. You know, welcome to the company. Oh, this is great. My first day. This is fantastic. And then just from there on out, you know, you're gradually being phased out. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying so, to, I'm trying to be a man about it, but it's going to be hard. Oh no, you're going to weep like a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about growing up in Florida, because Florida is, uh, to me, uh, strange, or at least it, oh. it, it tends to generate lots of uh, interesting stories. Like I, one of my favorite movies is the Earl Morris movie, uh, Vernon, Florida. I don't know if you've ever seen that. No, I haven't. Uh, it's actually worth it's worth watching. It's about all these people who tried to uh, collect insurance money by purposefully losing limbs. I believe that's right. But uh, sounds Floridian. Yeah, you know? know, and there's you know there's just like the uh, there's a strange there's a strange world down there and a strange mix of people. Like, what was it like where you were, and, and did you have exposure to this strangeness, or do you refute it? Do, oh, exposure to the strangeness. Yeah, Florida is actually three different countries, I think. Uh, it's, it's sort of North Florida, Central Florida, and South Florida. And the strangeness, I'm from the middle, which I think is some of the strangest territory, actually. Actually, I grew up for, like 
about 20 minutes from where, where Trayvon Martin was shot. Um, and that, to a certain extent, came as no surprise because there's this sort of culture in Florida, which is both, you know, touristy and strip molly and Walmarty and also racist. And then there's this, this other part of it, which is sort of, you know, they're small universities and they're, you know, they're artists and whatnot. Um, Central Florida, though, you know, I spent 27 years in the same town in Central Florida. So, you know, weirdness, I, I had my full share of, uh, <laughs> of strangeness in Central Florida. Um, it's, it's, an odd, it's an odd place. I mean, I think when you hear people talk about, you know, well, I've been to Florida, you know, most people, oh, is it Disney or did you go to the Keys or did, you know, it's depending on where you are in the state, it's a, it's a wild ride. Um, but I'm, I was not sad to leave, really. Okay, but 27 years in DeLand, is that correct? In DeLand, yeah, DeLand, Florida. Um, it's, it's a funny, it's, there's a university in the town called Stetson, um, which is where my father taught. And, you know, it, it was, he had moved around his whole life. I'd spent years, um, sort of, I think, his father had, had been a bright guy, but had usually was running from debt collectors. So he had, I think he went to 17 different schools in 18 years of schooling. Um, so he wanted to settle down somewhere. So when my father got this, this job teaching at Stetson, he was not going to leave. This was it. He was going to stick it in the ground right here. Um, and so, you know, I grew up around a university town, um, which the land mostly is a university town at its center, but then it's sort of surrounded by a, a beltway of what was referred to by a lot of snobs at the school as townies, you know, so the sort of typical you know, college town versus locals thing, except that I grew up there and then went to school there for undergrad because the price was right. Um, yeah. So, so that's, you know, it, it was a good place to grow up in many ways. Um, did you grow up in a small town? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it was like, uh, I mean, really small town when I was a, a, a littler kid. And then when I was, a, you know, moved to Indiana, when I was in junior high, I was in a slightly bigger suburb. Uh, that's actually grown a lot since I left, but uh, you know, I'm from Indiana and, and Wisconsin, so they, the, the, you know those places in Indiana, in particular, has its own variety of strangeness. But I feel like I there's, I feel like there's like a, a dramatic, str- like I don't know if it's just like popular imagination or if I'm drawing on some sort of Carl Hyacinth thing or whatever it is. <laughs> but there, it feels like there's some sort of dramatic strangeness to Florida. And then years ago, uh, you know, four, five, six years ago, when my wife and I were dating, we went down to Miami. Uh, mm-hmm. she had some work thing and I just sort of tagged along and, and, you know, we spent a few days, uh, in Miami and, um, I couldn't, you know, it was fun. It was fine, you know, but I couldn't uh, wrap my head around. I had some sort of like sixth sense of some strangeness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Doing yeah, a terrible it, job of describing this, but you know, what I mean. <laughs> no, but that's the thing. I actually think it's very hard to describe the strangeness and contradictions that are, that are inherent in Florida. I mean, you know, it, there are so many tourist images portrayed of it. I mean, you have like, yeah, the Miami and South beach and, and, and then, you know, not too far from there, you come up the state and you sort of, after you drift out of this sort of wealthier tropical paradise, you end up sort of in this Southern band where there's some, there's agriculture and it, it gets more spaced out and becomes, becomes increasingly strange. Um, and then just, you know, even though, it's a it's a large peninsula. There's no real sense of like development control or zoning in Florida. Like there's just it's just sort of this free for all, you know, for the most part. And then you come across these great parks, um, which essentially connect you to what's prehistoric in Florida. I mean, really, I think Florida off the 
off the grid reminds you, you know, like this place can kill you. You know, we have plenty of snakes and alligators and, um, you know, things get really weird. Uh, the deeper you get into river culture and, you know, well, that was, that's another thing. I remember reading this article in the New Yorker and I forget which hurricane it was that swept up all those, um, exotic pets and like threw them out into the jungle. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, this is, you know, the exotic pet thing. This is, this is a big invasive species problem in like South Florida. People, you know, people get boa constrictors, you know, and I, this, it, this is immediately indicative of some of the Floridian mindset in that your go-to pet is a boa constrictor. Right. <laughs> right. Like, well, what do we need? We want a dog? I'm sure we've got dogs, dogs, cats, maybe a gerbil. Let's get a boa constrictor. And then, of course, they get very large. And there's only so much of an aquarium you can hold them in. And so they turn them loose into, into swamps or into the, the woods. And so there's actually this huge problem, right, where, where these invasive species are sort of slithering around. Um, and, yeah, they, you know, they, get, they get swept up in storms. They get cast about. They get into the, they get into the system. Uh, you know, they eat people's dogs off of their pool decks. It's, it's, it's a little wild sometimes. Jesus Christ. Yeah, see, that's part of it, too. That's like, you know, I'm just a, And then there was like, I want to say I was watching some sort of National Geographic documentary about... Uh, like Sanibel Island or someplace like that, and there's all these like uh, alligator attacks, and you know, there's just... yeah, it's funny. I you know when I grew up, um, we used to we used to go out to the river, the St. Johns River, and um, I had some friends who worked at the marina, and we would get uh, we would be able to rent the speedboats for you know for nothing, basically fuel, and so it was it was a lot of fun to go out on the, on the boats on the river and you know ski and and just cruise around, um, but. As I've gotten some distance from it, I remember like you would routinely be in water where you have seen recently or can currently see alligators. Yeah, no. See, I'm I'm, I'm not I'm not doing that. Like my dad, my parents, <laughs> my parents grew up in South Louisiana, so like I also have some experience with this kind of thing, or at least stories of like you know going water skiing where you're being towed by a truck on the little road. You know what I'm saying? Like in the bayous. So yeah, no, that that's exactly yeah. No, that that's. Yeah, you'd fit right in, man. You should I, head down there. <laughs> no, I can't do it. And like that, you know, there's like a lot of different ways that a person can die. And like, obviously, we're all going to find our own way. But one way I do not want to die, knock on wood, is that I do not want to uh, end as a meal. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, that's just a really undignified way to go. And like, I don't think that there's any, if, you know, I, I'll go swimming in the ocean. You know, I will take chances. But like, if you're in a, a river in Florida that you know is infested with alligators, that seems, uh, Seems like a roll of the dice. I don't want to take. You know. Well, you know, it's, you 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 grow up around the redneck advice. You know, well, they're more scared of you than you are of them. And <laughs> yeah, I don't. I've never bought that. You know, in particular, when you hear of people's pets going down. But you know, it's a pretty gruesome death, actually. Uh, yeah, they, uh, yeah, they, they roll you around. Like I remember, uh, this was yeah. when I was in college. I was in. Uh, I went to do a study abroad in Australia, and. Uh, I went to some music festival. My my buddies and I were up in this town called Cannes, which is where the Great Barrier Reef is. And uh-huh. we were staying at some youth hostel in the in the jungle. So it's called Daintree. I think it's called Daintree National Rainforest. And it's like one of the only rainforests in the world that sits uh, that like directly abuts an ocean. If I if, wow. I, if I'm remembering you know remembering this correctly, but they have uh, these saltwater crocodiles. Huh, that yeah. the jungle is infested with that live in the little tributaries that feed into the uh, sea or whatever. And yeah. so we go to this uh, we go to this music festival in the jungle. It was like some sort of hippie festival and bands, and it was all day long. And 
you know, we, we were college students. So we're like, yeah, we'll go to this thing and we're staying at this youth hostel in the jungle that's sort of uh, exotic and there's like snakes everywhere. Right. And so we do this and it was really fun, but we forgot that we didn't have like proper transportation to get back to the place that we were staying. So we figured we would just like walk up this road. And, you know, you're in a road in the middle of the jungle. It's, there's no light whatsoever. There's no street oh, lights. Yeah. So we start walking, and, uh, of course, we start thinking, like, about the, the saltwater crocodiles. And I think we had probably smoked pots. So we're, like, a little paranoid. You know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, like, yeah, so, like, the road, at, at some point, we hear, like, you know, the sound of rushing water. And we the road uh, dips down and, uh, you know, sort of uh, goes through... Um, a, a small tributary, you know, you have to kind of like step on rocks or whatever. Yeah. And, even better. Yeah. So we're walking across this thing and I shit you not, like all of a sudden there was the sound of like thrashing water ah. and I've never run so fast in my entire life. Like all, it was like yeah. the three stooges, like all three of us took off in like different directions. And then like, we, came, <laughs> yeah. then, we then we like came back in and like ran into each other. It was terrifying, you know? <laughs> You're stepping on the crocodile's head as you're running across the water. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the anti-Disney moment. You know, yeah, so yeah. So did you ever marijuana have experiences like that? Did you have like, close encounters with uh, large animals and lizards and stuff? You know, I never I never had a problem um, with the uh, with the alligator. Like, I never had a close encounter with the alligators. Um, it's actually funny. I, one time someone came to Florida, and uh, they had never seen an alligator. And my... I was so excited because I was like, well, this is something truly exotic they've never seen before. And I took them out to this wildlife preserve, um, you know, sort of in the winter. And I thought, well, we'll be able to see the alligators. And there was not a single alligator around. And usually this place was crawling with them. I mean, just these canals out by this bird watching area uh, outside of the land. And I said, no, you don't understand. We're surrounded by them right now. I'm sure we are. They're just, they're just not out right now. It looks like <laughs> the biggest liar, you know. <laughs> Oh, come to prehistoric Florida and, you know, well, welcome to a field. Well, can't you, like, uh, chum the waters or something? Can't you, like, uh, you know? Well, I, I was fresh out of cats. And the thing was is, you know, I didn't have any cats with me at the time. So there's, <laughs> there's no chumming <laughs> that you could do. Um, no, I've never chummed for, for gators. That's just that's never, <laughs> never been on my radar. Do they, I mean, I, I would assume they responded. I know sharks respond to that. I'm sure, you know, who knows. But alligators are just... Um, there's something about alligators and crocodiles that is very, uh, prehistoric. I mean, obviously, I don't know. Oh, yeah. They're creepy animals. The death incarnate, right? I mean, we just look at them. They're, yeah. They're in, yeah. there's something indestructible about them, you know? Yeah. They will. Yeah. I never feared them growing up, but honestly, when I moved out West, grizzly bears were the thing that got, that got to me. The idea of grizzly bears camping anywhere where there could be a, a or a large bear of some kind, maybe not specifically grizzlies. I uh, see. I've dealt with um, black bears, which are different than grizzlies. Like East Coast, I've seen in the woods black bears, and like it's surprisingly, um, and, and you know, frankly, I've seen an alligator or two before. You know, uh, I can't even remember where. Maybe it was like it's probably at like Disneyland, but you know what I'm saying. Like I've seen right. I've seen bears in the woods, and um, it was just me and my dog, and I looked up the hill, and there was a bear sort of walking parallel, and it wasn't it was tracking me or anything. It was just walking, and it was no big deal, you know, but black bears are a different story. Like a grizzly bear, um, I would be scared, like legitimately yeah. scared. I don't want anything to do with a grizzly bear in the wild. Yeah, I've had no. You see, that's a, I try to explain this to people, you know, who who want to go camping in sort of these backcountry locations, and I'm a terrible camper. I'm just awful about it, and... And, you know, they say, like, there's no beauty on earth which is going to be, is going to pass through my mind as, you know, while my arms are being torn from my body as being worth it, you know? Like, wow, that was an incredible canyon, 
as I'm being mauled. <laughs> no, it's not going to add up for me. Have so. you seen Have you seen a Grizzly Man, the Werner Werner Herzog movie about? No, it? I haven't. I haven't, and that's it, yeah. I figured I didn't need any reinforcement of a fear. No, you, know, you, you should see it. It's fantastic, though. It's like really. I mean, you know, talk about a guy who was completely crazy. Like he was just, you know, just yeah. three, three or four feet away from a grizzly that's like you know sniffing the air and what's what's amazing is it's not amazing that he got eaten like it's just that amazing that it took so long like because he did like you know 10 or or 12 years of time out there and and survived and then really the only reason uh he wound up getting eaten was because he decided to stay on an extra couple of weeks past when he would usually leave and you know i don't know he just got unlucky but you know the, the fact that he would get right up into their faces with these cameras and not get not get mauled was insane to me you ever think around year 10, he was talking to his friends and was like, you know, I've been out there 10 years. Nothing's happened. It's, you know, you should come out. And that's, that's <laughs> other people are thinking like, man, I don't know. Maybe he's right. Maybe there's, you know, this would be, we should all go out. You know, it's a terrible, terrible idea. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't get it at all. And, and, you know, he's lucky or he was lucky, you know, for all those years that he didn't. But it also shows that like, you know, the, these animals, unless they're, if they're really hungry, then all bets are off. But as long as like the food supply is good. You know, it's like, it's like that with sharks. Like they don't really want to eat people. You know, it's like usually a mistake yeah. when they eat a person. Um, but you know, I guess if 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 an animal's really hungry, then forget about it. Yeah. Well, you know, can't blame them. I mean, what are you going to do? Like you're you're out there. You've got to make it work. Yeah. Uh, you so know. let's. Uh, I want to talk to you about uh, Florida some more. I want to talk about your childhood. Like, what kind of kid were you? Like, were you well adjusted? Were you in? This uh, college town and, and, you know, fairly studious and reading a lot. Oh. What was happening? No, you know, it's funny. I, I mean, I, generally I think I was a happy kid. I probably had my share of anxiety. Um, but I did like growing up in a university town. I, I did like the seasonality. You know, both my parents taught. Um, and I did like very much my father's, like, rhythm at the university. And so as a kid, I liked that quite a bit. Um, I wasn't particularly studious. I mean, I think I, think I was probably lazy you know, really lazy, good classic procrastinator, um, you know, the kind of kid who gets a call from the science teacher at the house, you know, two days after the science project was supposed to be turned in, and, like, I haven't even come up with a hypothesis, you know, and just sort of not a great student. I mean, I was I was bright enough, I guess, but I, you know, didn't really apply myself. Um, I got... Got stuck in a program for gifted kids. They used to do this little, you know, the gifted kids get bussed out of town. That was actually kind of curious. They would bus us out to another school where they had a pod of, like, gifted kids to, to learn, um, which was really odd because it was actually at a school where there was a, a large amount of um, migrant farmer sort of fernery worker population. Um, so it was this really bizarre scenario where you sort of shipped away from your town and then kept in this special little bubble at this school where these other kids were dealing with sort of abject poverty and English is not their first language. And so, you know, that was strange. Um, but as a kid, basically, I was happy. I mean, my father was sick a lot when I was growing up. He was uh, had diabetes and heart disease. Um, so that was a big, big presence in my life uh, growing up. Like what kind of heart disease? I mean, it was just like, uh, like arteriosclerosis or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You sort of like, you know, sort of the nasty side effects of type one diabetes. He was diagnosed when he was nine. So it was like 1954, um, when he was diagnosed and, you know, one of the, one of the treatments back in the day, and so sort of, they had this sort of scared straight approach to diabetes therapy in 1954, uh, up in New Jersey where he was, was that they took you into an amputee ward and they said, Hey, 
if you don't take care of yourself, this is what's going to happen to you. And they would walk, they walked them down this sort of ward where these people have recently lost feet, you know, legs. Um, and so the sort of horrible, horrible thing in his life was based largely on sort of dealing with those sorts of traumas around having diabetes early on. But yeah, the heart disease was sort of, came with the whole, the whole diabetic package. Um, but, but, um, yeah, it's kind of dark. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It happens, you know. It happens, yeah. And so um, what about your mom? What was she doing? What was she teaching? Um, my mom taught, uh, she taught, um, she taught English for a while, and then she worked in a school um, for uh, special needs kids, and she did a, kind of like, they had a, like sort of a vocational home curriculum program, and so, you know, it was was funny when she taught there, she basically was teaching these kids like how they were going to get along in life at home, you know, managing their own cooking, cleaning, laundry, that sort of thing. Um, and she'd done lots of, lots of English teaching before that, but this was the second phase of her life. And, you know, once she had two kids, me and my brother, you know, the last thing she wanted to do after teaching people all day, how to sort of manage a domestic life was do anything particularly domestic. (laughs) So she sort of came home and was like, you know what, dinner, forget about it. We're going out for barbecue and, you know, laundry, you're on your own, uh, sort of done uh, with that whole phase. But that was, yeah, that was her teaching for a long time. Uh, and then what, you said you had a, a brother. Did I hear you right? Or? Yeah, I've got a brother. Um, my brother, Brian, um, he was, he was, it was really interesting. He's a younger brother, two years younger. Um, and uh, he still lives in Florida, actually. He's still down there. Yeah, he's still down there. He's still down there. He was, uh, used to be in a number of uh, metal bands. Um, and, uh, really creative guy, really, really funny. It's a good guy. Uh, I miss him. I don't get to see him enough, actually. You're going to get him out of there? You're going to fly him out to San Francisco and... You know, I, he came out to visit, uh, when I, when I got married out here, he came out to visit and, um, he, uh, I would like to see him get out of Florida someday. I don't know if he will, um, but he also likes Florida too. So it's, and he's, he's got a daughter there now and he's got another daughter there now. And so he's, I get the sense that, that he's not going to leave, but he could, I don't know. Time, time could change. I feel, you know, I feel like the more I look, you know, I, I, the older I get, I feel like there's people who leave and there's people who stay. Like I just talked, yeah. to, I think I just talked to Susan Strait, uh, and she said that, and I think I agree yeah. with it. So I'm like co-opting it, but uh, I'm a person who leaves. Like I've always moved yeah. around, but I moved around a lot as a kid, so like it just feels normal to me. And like now I'm in Los Angeles, and I've been here for 12 years, which is the longest I've ever lived anywhere. And, wow. Twelve years. Yeah, so I'm like, I'm like, am I going to stay here? Like, what's going on? I don't know what's going to happen. I guess I'll stay, but maybe I'll leave. I like the weather. Yeah. I, I get really, you know, you get really spoiled by the weather in California. Not to like yeah. be super. Uh, I don't know. I hate when I talk about weather, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> no, I do know. It's actually it's a huge thing. I mean, like San Francisco, has, it's basically I describe it to people as like it's like Florida's winter all year round, with dashes of like sort of, you know, rains and fog, but it's basically cold here the entire year by any Floridian standards. Um, but yeah, it's true. I mean, there are people who stay and people who leave. Um, and I think sometimes people who, who stay believe that the lives of people who left were somehow easier or more glamorous or, or more interesting. Um, but in many cases, I don't think that's true. They're just they're just in a different location and that can't help but change the way you think about things and the way you are. Well, no, this is the thing. Like I went through this, you know, it was part of like growing up maybe or whatever, but I'm like, you know, one of those people who is susceptible to the idea. And to some degree, I guess I still am, you know, in like the romantic corner of my brain. But 
uh, you know, as a younger man, I was susceptible to the idea that, you know, you, you could change locations and somehow that would change the way you are. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. And so yeah, absolutely. you could, I would always think to myself, God, it would be just so great to live overseas somewhere. It would be so great to live in New York or wherever it is. You know, it's easy to fall oh, yeah. into that trap of thinking that somehow if you change location, it's going to change what's happening between your ears, but it doesn't really work that way. No, it seems that it catches up with you. I mean, I when I did leave Florida, I left. I left in a burn the village scenario. I mean, I. Yeah. Why I, did you Why did you leave? Well, it was funny. I went to grad school. Um, when I went into grad school, I was married and living in Florida. And when I exited grad school, I was divorced and living in San Francisco. Okay. And so wait, where did you go to grad school? You went to Stetson for undergrad, right? Stetson for undergrad, and then I went to Bennington, the Bennington Writing Seminars. They do a low residency program up at Bennington. Um, so, so you, so so you I, were still based in Florida. I was still based in Florida. That's right. Um, but you know, I think say a lot of people go into grad school. They're either they've either just survived a large change or they're looking to make a huge change. And that was true of uh, true of me for sure when I went into Bennington. I mean, I was reaching some sort of bleak, I don't know, those existential self crises where you decide, you know, like, well, this will change everything. Kind of like moving, right? You know, this is going to change everything, right? Yeah, so uh, so I went up there and and you know. So wait, you you went up to Vermont? Is it in Vermont or no? Vermont, yeah. Okay, so you went yeah. up to Bennington, Vermont, and you were you had just gotten divorced. No, not yet. I was still married, and uh, when I went up to to Vermont, um, basically everything changed in Vermont for me. The people I met there, um, other students in the program, the instructors. Like Bennington did change my life, though. I it didn't. It didn't mean I came out of, of, of school with a manuscript. It meant that everything else in my life got sort of root accessed and rebooted. Um, so, yeah, so I went in there, and then I met, met my current wife in the grad school program and uh, came back to Florida after a couple of rough residencies and said, this is it, I'm out, I'm done. So what do you mean rough residencies? Um, just, uh, you know, coming up there, meeting someone new, um, realizing that you've gone through your life sleepwalking half the time and deciding you need to burn the village down and move somewhere else. Get out of the marriage. Get out of the marriage. Yeah. Wow. And that was bad. that was ugly. Yeah, it's um, not easy. No, it's not easy. You're married, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been married for five years, and uh, you, you got to work on that. When when you say yeah, you can't say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to say, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> work on that part. No, I was like racing. I was looking through my head trying to count the years because I always get confused. Like, we've been together for seven years. Right. And we've yeah. been married for five. We'll be married for six years in August, and it's great. But it does, I mean, it's work, you know? Like, marriage is not, you know, I'm, it's, it's hard to talk about because to talk about it and to, you can, you can easily slip into euphemism, and then it also sort of presumes that you know what you're doing. And, like, for me, right. it's like, you know, what do I tell friends? Like I have buddies who will get married and like, we'll be talking about it. And the only smart thing I think I can ever say about it in any kind of like encompassing way is that it always will go well. If both of you are approaching the relationship from the perspective of what can I give as opposed to what can I get or what do I deserve? Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, that's it. Oh yeah. So if you're that's, both, if you're, if you're both doing advice. that, you'll be in good shape. If one of you is doing that, you won't be in good shape. But if neither of you are doing that, you're going to be in really bad shape. <laughs> you're right. I mean, I always, I, I remember when I was married the first time, I remember we never really fought, you know, and, and I try to explain to people like if they're, if they're fighting with, with their spouse, I'm like saying, well, that's good. 
you you need you need some concept. You need if you're not airing those things on a on a sort of peaceful, rational, let's sit down and have a conversation level. If you're airing them on the we're shouting at each other and we throw a plate now and again level, that's better than silence. I I stand by that. Because yeah, because it's, it's like a slow it's, it's like a bottled up uh, fire or something. You know, it's just, that's right. Yeah, it is. It's bad news. You bad gotta, news. You got to communicate. So okay, so you're at Bennington. You meet your current wife there. She's a writer. Yes, she is. Okay. Um, yeah, and that was sort of like the pivot point. You met her, and that was a catalyst that said, you know what, I've got to make some changes. Yeah, that was that was that was definitely what what made me want to change, and then and I did it in the worst way possible. I mean, this was sort of the the, the worst thing you could possibly do. I mean, I I drafted the blueprint for how not to leave a marriage. Um, <laughs> it's available. They want to download it. I can show you how to completely fuck up. It's it's yeah. So I so I have this you know I have this feeling this like if this is wrong I need to go back I need to be you know I need to be a straight shooter and I need to you know clear clear the slate and. So I go back and I say, you know what? I'm not happy. I think we need to split up. Uh, there's much gnashing of teeth and rending of hair, and this is terrible. And and then about halfway through that process, I lose my nerve, right? It's a real proud moment, right? So you come home, you ask for a divorce, then you lose your nerve, and then you say everything's fine. And then you go up for another residency, and you realize, I was just a coward. You say, wow, that's an extreme act of cowardice. Now I'm going to go back and I'm going to do it right. So rather than tear the Band-Aid off, right, you go back and you sort of slowly remove it. And it was miserable. It was, well, it was the but, worst thing I could have done. Okay, but let's talk about because like this, the, you know, divorce or whether you're like in a, in a, um, a non-marriage, you know, some sort of relationship that precedes marriage or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, it falls yeah. outside of the context of marriage. Breaking up is always messy or not always, I guess, but almost always. Like it's just not easy. And every once in a while, you know, I'll hear these stories about people who have these like easy breakups and they just remain friends. And that's got to be the exception rather than the rule. Like it's just yeah, those are, those are the relationship unicorn stories, right? You know. <laughs> right. Oh, and then we were friends, and occasionally we all got together and we had potato salad at the picnic, and you're like, that's bullshit. This doesn't exist. Yeah. This is a unicorn relationship you're describing. Yeah. yeah. So it's like sort of you sort of by by virtue of the fact that you. Um, chickened out you basically yeah. then created a slow motion train wreck as opposed oh to like- yeah it was like 300 <laughs> frames per second i mean it was <laughs> it was it even extended beyond the actual leaving because we had a house for sale in florida um and this was 2004 and and what happened in 2004 was three hurricanes came through the state and basically within the course of i think maybe two or three months um they, and they all followed roughly the same track and, you know, A, it's a terrible metaphor uh, for, for what's going on in a first marriage. And B, it destroys the property you have on the market, which was sort of an extension of the 300 frame per second disaster divorce. <laughs> because I, I, was actually, um, I was actually in Europe when this happened. I was in Spain. And my, my now ex-wife called me and said, hey, I know you've heard about these storms. Well, they just took the roof off the back of the house and flooded it. Ugh. Yeah. What, what were you doing in Spain? Um, well, this is, you know, if, <laughs> if you're really going to start over, I'm sure the first thing you do is you come to a new town, then you immediately go to Europe. I don't know why, but we <laughs> went, we took a trip to, to Prague in Spain uh, and somewhere else. I don't remember at the time. Um, so the, oh, so this it, was like a romantic getaway. Oh, he was romantic, you know, like, and that's, that's another great thing when you're in it for the long haul is, you know, it's a, 
you start off with this sort of like euphoria. And one of the things about getting the divorce is that you really don't see the wake of your divorce behind you yet. You're sort of in the speedboat hauling ass, right? Yeah. And then when you stop, the wake of everything you've burnt down, damaged, done wrong, comes over you in this great wave, right? And so I was still charging ahead at that point, even as houses were flooding and dogs were dying. It was just you were yeah. on you were on the run. I was on the run, yeah, <laughs> on the run. That's awesome. Okay, so you, so you get this call. The hurricanes are coming through. There's damage uh, with the house. You're still yeah. you're still not officially um, divorced at that point. No, we are actually officially divorced, but there was this sort of trailing trailing assets kind of. Thing. Oh right, right. You just had to you had to yeah. get rid of the house and split the split the the money up and everything. Yeah, yeah, it was a uh, yeah. That was that was no fun. Let me tell you, the two worst words to hear after a hurricane comes through and you have a house on the market is "as is." You never <laughs> want because that's what happened to the house. It was sold as is, which basically means you got your ass handed to you. Ugh. Uh, by storm yeah it's, it's no good okay but. okay well so okay so this is the the, the change has happened there's been the, the shift change. you've gone to graduate school you've met your your now uh current wife you've gotten yep. out of your old you know your your unhappy marriage and then um what were you doing professionally preceding graduate school you know what i'm saying like what was what was happening with you were you always on the track to be a writer or were you doing other things and no. then had, had this awakening like what was it yeah no i was not on the track to be a writer i mean i was writing um sort of sporadically then before I went to grad school, really sporadically. I wrote pretty steadily as an undergrad, terrible, terrible stories. And then um, then I spent a period of time where I, I got into web development um, in 96, 97. It's a good um, time. Because I, you know, I had minted this liberal arts degree and was facing the prospect of working, supporting myself, and quickly realized if I wasn't going to run off for a master's um, that I was going to have to feed myself. And so this was right about the time that uh, HTML – you know, the Netscape's out in 94, by 96, 97, you know, there are mom-and-pop web shops opening up um, pretty regularly, and they're able to charge a lot at that time. So that's where I started. I started, I taught, taught myself HTML. A friend of mine had taught himself HTML, and I started doing that. Um, and so that, that sort of got me into something that I could, I could do to, to feed myself, um, at least for a little while. What about the dot com bubble? I mean, did, did you did that screw everything up? No, oh, no. Everybody, everybody moved into pornography who survived the dot com bubble. So, no, so you had all these. It's yeah, all you know, all these people who were in web development. I think pretty much they uh, they realized everyone saw the dot com bubble coming. I mean, this was not a surprise. I mean, it's sort of like right now. I'm kind of surprised at how much there's not people aren't paying attention to it. But then. Everyone was sitting around in, in late 97, 98, yeah, I guess later 98, saying, you know what, this whole thing's going to come crashing down. And so there were a lot of people who, who, chased, who, who chased online pornography. At the time, it was relatively inexpensive and easy to get into. I read something the other day, uh, it was like, or it was like a video on the Huffington Post, and it was like 10, this is the sort of shit that will like draw me in online any day, but it was like 10 insane facts about the porn industry. So, of course, I hit play. And, uh, right. and it's like thirty percent of all websites have are porn related or something like that. It was like some insane fact, but the amount of money and the amount of like gigabytes of porn, you know, pornography that are being streamed or whatever ingested yeah. at any moment is pretty staggering. It's, I mean, that, I mean, that's what's staggering about. I mean, I think about the internet. As, I mean, this is the same with VHS technology, and I'm stealing this idea from somebody, but I can't remember who. 
was that, you know, the whole reason the VHS industry exploded was because of pornography. And so, like, there's this idea that the black markets drive innovation, right? And so the Internet, to a certain extent, while it was maybe intended to be this great, uh, we're going to survive the apocalypse communication system, it actually turned out to be really efficient at delivering pornography, and that allowed a lot of money to be poured into R&D, especially with streaming video. Um, and so, yeah, I wouldn't doubt that so much of the traffic is just raw pornography um, being shuttled about. Just billions of dollars. That's all people want. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. What? I'm not even kidding. I mean, it's now, an unbelievable mega business. And, uh, you know, it's like, where, where does it end? Like, they, I don't, you know, then you start to think about like virtual reality and what's coming. And it's just, it's crazy to even ponder. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I you have to wonder how, really how anybody makes any money anymore in, in adult content online. Because, you know, it's completely free and unfettered access. I mean, that, it's, it's just pumped out there just, just, you know, by the terabit. It's just flowing all the time. How does anyone actually, you know, charge for that sort of stuff anymore? I have no idea. I, I mean, guess they it, advertise, right? They're, they must be doing display ads or who knows. Yeah, that's a good question because, like, it's all, it's all free. You don't even have to pay. Yeah, yeah it's funny. I, I mean, I wonder how much of it now. I mean, now, of course, the next, you know, the next phase of pornography is probably big big data, right? Big information. Um, whereas that's, I mean, that's what everyone's banking on is that nobody needs big brother. If everyone's feeding big brother, right? Like Facebook, Twitter, your cookies, your history. I mean, with the election, people, you know, people tracking you and tracking where you shop and what you do. And, and that, that is probably, you know, that's an order of magnitude. It makes pornography look like pocket change. I'm sure of that. What do you mean in terms of how big of a market share it would have? Yeah, I mean, how how big of a you know when you when you collect all this all this information about people as consumers and what they're doing and their behaviors and where they're checking in, that's worth a huge amount of money, I think. Yeah, no, I, mean, I have a friend who is working for a company that does that, and like it's it's like this kind of like shadow industry of um, tracking technology. Like people have no idea that they're in, like all of their behavior online is being uh, scouted, right. and you know they they. Well, you know, eventually we'll we'll get sophisticated enough, you know, and tell me if I'm wrong, but it's going to get sophisticated enough where these companies are going to know all of your spending habits and all of your uh, web browsing habits, and they'll use that information to um, very elegantly present certain products to you and, I guess, whatever other nefarious stuff that we Yeah, I mean, that's, that's that question of, like, you know, do you own your information? And I think, by and large, we're like, you know, we're sort of the Indians giving away New York for beads, you know, being being basically, you know, like we don't, we're, sure, we don't know. What, what are we giving away? It doesn't, you know, I don't know. It's, the land is everyone's land. My information is everyone's information. But I think in the future there will be a lot of people who look back and say, "Wow, they just willingly rolled over and fed all this information and gave it away, and then it was monetized." And I suspect they'll become, you know, the companies who have gathered it and used and parsed it will become very sophisticated at, you know, presenting you irresistible offers and. And who knows what else? I mean, it's, blackmailing it's sort of, you. Blackmailing you. I mean, that is. Well, I always wonder, you know, about these all, you know, check-in technologies and so forth. It's it's kind of interesting. I mean, I don't know that that Orwell. I mean, I mean, I think the the notion was is that you know, well, there'd be this terrible authoritarian structure that uh, in the future, which dominated our lives, you know, or you know, we seem to be building it for ourselves at times. It's almost like we want it. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like, right. You know, but there, 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 there is like there is, there is sort of like in the back of my mind, I'll sometimes think to myself that like you know, 
there's enough people in the world or there's some sort of weird dark energy at the heart of humanity that wants the apocalypse that's like moving towards it in some sort of like inexorable way and you know that's an awful thought but like sometimes you do you ever feel like that it's just like oh, the whole yeah, the whole species funny. is just self-destructing yeah right i mean i think i think when you're faced with sort of the incomprehensibility of modern life you have this urge to you know to to like believe in a world where, you know, if you know how to use a hammer or a chainsaw or where your next meal is coming from, that's a sort of this reductivist fantasy. Like, Oh, well, and it's, well, but it's also like, uh, God, I, I somewhat, I read this somewhere recently and I'm going to paraphrase it and I'm going to screw it up, but it made like, in, like chilling sense to me, but it was about capitalism and how, you know, it's like an angry reaction against the human condition. And when all of your, motivations are based on short-term gain with no uh, long-term vision at all, which is essentially the driving force of any capitalist enterprise. You're there to make money. And that means that you've got to uh, deliver profits on time for your, your investors. And you've got to make sure you grow by X percent every quarter and whatever the, you know, whatever the case may be. But when you live that way at the expense of any kind of long-term vision or any kind of consideration for long-term consequence, it becomes cannibalistic. You know what I'm saying? All of a sudden you're devouring the resources, which we clearly are, or you're polluting the rivers, which we do, or, you know, whatever the case may be. And so, um, you know, the, the question is like, why is that happening and why are we letting it happen? And it almost seems like it's like an angry response against something. Uh, You know, I forget what the person said who, who wrote it, but it was like, I don't know, it was very persuasive and it seemed to crystallize something for me, at least for, you know, that five minutes, you know? Yeah. Well, it's funny. I was just reading uh, Cosmopolis uh, by DeLillo, and I had not read it before. And, and you know, DeLillo is always, you know, you always, he's always telling you something you're going to find out about in 10 years. You always feel like right. he was always there first in some way. And, and it's interesting in Cosmopolis is this discussion of time, right, that, that the invention of time on smaller and smaller scale kept us more and more focused on the, the next quarter, right, or whatever the markets were doing. And then, you know, when time was less subdivided, we had – more opportunity to ponder the mystery of us in the universe and the notion of, you know, our mortality and art. Um, and I think there's something to that. I mean, when you start to, you know, talk about timing things, you know, micro trading and, and these ideas that algorithms are trading large amounts of money, uh, and large amounts of capital, um, it's, it's astonishing. I mean, those, those were not, you couldn't do that as a human being. And now those are the forces in the market that have these enormous impacts. Well, and I mean, it's also subject to human error. And I remember not too long ago, there was some sort of computer glitch that like yeah. wound up selling, you know, wound up costing some uh, hedge fund or something like, you know, billions of dollars. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's sort of like what they, the, the fat finger problem, right? Like, oh, I accidentally just traded a hundred million shares uh, or, you know, I accidentally set off this, this this automatic sell order that I didn't mean to set off. And of course it tanks however many millions of dollars or even a billion dollars worth of capital. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, it's terrifying, right? I mean, yeah. We live in the face of these forces now, which in some senses are, are really no different than, than the forces of our, you know, of death, of the mystery of death. I think that we've, we're always sitting in front of, but really trying not to look at. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy. But, it's crazy. It is. So uh, we read. Yeah. So we read. And I think like, you know, the optimist in me believes that there are, you know, you, it's not a, it's not a, I don't believe that, that our fate is sealed, at least not quite yet. Um, I want to believe that anyway. I think you have to sort of live as if there's hope. Otherwise, what's the point, you know? Right. That's right. I mean, 
my sense is that the innate drive to write stories or tell stories or try to organize um, some narrative in our lives is an indication of hope. I, you know, I have to take it as a good sign that people still want to write stories and, and publish books, not just books, but just to communicate in the form of narrative of some kind. Um, well, just to, like just to make art, art, just to make art in response make to art. life, yeah, that's right. I think is a hopeful, it's a hopeful activity. And I think it's also an appropriate activity and like whatever it happens to be. And I've had this thought recently, uh, where it's like, I don't make enough and I, I spend too much time worrying about, uh, the quality. And I think the whole good, bad argument when it comes to art is silly. And yet it's easy to fall prey to in some sort of egoic way where, you know, you're considering how people are going to receive it or what it's going to mean to you or whether or not you're going to make money with it. And, you right. know, all of those thoughts are hard to resist, and I think that I would be dishonest if I said they didn't sometimes plague me. But yeah. you know, the, what I think I should be doing, especially with the technology we have, like I, I said not too long ago, it was like, why am I not making a short documentary film every day? Right. Why am I? I'm spending how many? You know, at least an hour and a half just sitting slack jawed in front of the television. Why am I not just like filming weird stuff and making little documentaries from my life every day, or painting pictures, or drawing something? Like, just make art. Just make it. Because it's fun. To make it, yeah. You know? I, I think there's some there's some there's some larger impetus in the culture that tells you like, no, that's a silly waste of your time. Like, there's nothing worse than telling somebody who's not particularly interested in art about something you're working on that's art related, right? Like you're saying, like the little short films. Like if you were to, you're in a, you're in a coffee shop and some guy sitting next to you says, oh, you know, so what are you what are you doing this afternoon? You say, well, I'm going to make a little documentary about this awesome sandwich <laughs> I learned how to make the other day. You get, you're going to get this sort of stink eye or this sort of polite madman, you know, brush off. Um, when in point of fact, if you'd spent that hour or whatever watching TV, I mean, where, where's the value? It's probably in making a little documentary about your life. Right. You're just right? going to, I mean, for me, it's like, I'm mostly just like feeding my head with like cable news or something, especially in right. this election cycle. So it's like, just, it's all it is doing is feeding my anxiety and making me feel bad, you know, and. Uh, and telling me stuff that I already basically know. You know what I'm saying? It's not even inform. It's not even informative. Yeah, um, I mean that's. Well, that's like always seeking confirmation of the fear. Like, oh well. Right. Let's. You know, I already knew these terrible things. Like, should someone tell me these terrible things again? Oh, TV. Thank you. Right. Or, or just like you know, somehow like stoke my own anger or whatever, or confirm my own opinion as opposed to challenging it, which is probably a healthier way to go anyway. And then like you know, challenging it in an intelligent way, not just like the idiocy of like Fox news or something, but like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think it's right. good, yeah. good to get some sort of, uh, you know, balance in terms of what you're, uh, ingesting. But, um, you know, I think that a little bit of that goes a long way. I think reading when it comes to that kind of information is almost always better. I think tele you know, televisual opinion, you know, is really cheaply made these days. It's almost never, yeah. it's almost never any good. And I think that, Ultimately, um, you know, you don't need to spend hours and hours and hours on that. I think you can probably be more efficient about it and then spend most of your time making art about how you feel about it. I think that's a more productive mode of living. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, I, you know, I think the, the notion of breaking news and, and, you know, live streaming, I mean, it's on some level the immediacy of it keeps us – we think it's important because there's an immediacy. But in point of fact, you know, it's, is it news – Immediately, no, it's really not. Nobody's digested it. No one's presented it. No one's analyzed it. 24 hours later, maybe it's news. You know, at the end of the week, maybe it's news. Um, but, but yeah, it's, to be sucked into the immediacy cycle is just—it's just death. And so, I don't really think if it's uh, you know if it's immediate, it's not—it's not really news. I mean, it's only maybe news 24 hours later or a week later. Um, 
and you know it does it just cuts the balls right off of art and at that point you know you probably should be spending your time making art yeah i mean uh, that's kind of where i'm at and i just needed to live it better and i think that's part of why like this podcast makes me feel a little better like this to me is some sort of creative outlet even though it's not necessarily, I guess it's, I mean, I guess you could consider interviewing people creative. Uh, it feels creative yes. to put together a show. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I think it is creative. I mean, it's incredible how far, I mean, I, I listened to it early on. I think you had Blake Butler on and that was the first time I listened to it and I couldn't believe how much had gone on since <laughs> yeah. you've really kept up with it. It's, it's pretty amazing. So I think it is creative. I, I hope do. so. I hope so. I'd love to do, you know, and I'd lo- I think too, like I, this is another weird conversation I was having recently trying to imagine the way that like these things are going to manifest and the way that people can use technology creatively. Um, you know, because obviously you can now do things in your home, uh, or with the, the yeah. you know, with your computer that you you know were sort of unthinkable twenty years ago or even ten years ago. Yeah, and it's uh, incredible. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's like I was thinking. Like my my wife and I were having this conversation about our daughter, and you know, like there's a couple of things that uh, really stand out uh, from recent conversations. And it's like, first of all, it's very likely I think that we're not going to have to deal with her getting her driver's license at age sixteen because she's going to be in a driverless car. Um, wow. I think that's coming. I mean, she's only two now. Yeah. So I think in 14 years, it's entirely plausible that she's just going to get into a car and like type in wherever she's going and the car is just going to drive her. So yeah. she'll, she'll just have her like, you know, wine coolers or whatever she has when she's 16, <laughs> just put her in the car. <laughs> <laughs> uh, by then the car will rat you out too. yeah exactly i'll have a camera I'll have a, call home we'll have a we'll have a live stream of camera of whatever's happening in that car but um that's crazy to think about and then the other thing that i i sort of predict is that as soon as the um like television gets completely melded with the web i mean it's already there to some extent but when it's completely uh, melded uh in a really uh, sophisticated way like my prediction is that eventually like it's everything's going to get so atomized with regard to television content that like I can imagine a day when and and I think that that camera technology is going to get so sophisticated um, in terms of like people's camera phones being like studio quality that mm-hmm. you're going to wind up in a situation where like high school kids uh, their favorite programming is going to be created by their classmates you know like that'll be like the next yeah. step in reality television you're just going to watch the film like the 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 reality show that your friends made at school that day and edited on their phones and then put up on the web. Like, why would oh, you, yeah. why I would mean, you, why would you want to watch other kids from like the Jersey shore when you can just watch your own friends, you know? Yeah. It's funny. I, I mean, I watch my, uh, I watch my daughter now. Um, and you know, it, she, she is focused in on her friends as, as you know, as I think most people are at that age. Um, but yeah, I think that would be a home run idea for her if, if she thought she could see, you know, an instant replay of sort of the day and the friends and the drama and whatnot. Um, yeah, I think it would, it would probably top, top everything in her book, except maybe modern family. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> there's, I mean, there's going to be some exceptions, but I see that, you know, I see that sort of thing coming and then, you know, then it becomes a, a question of how does literature play in and whatnot. But, um, I want to ask you about, you know, the move to San Francisco, you were obviously working as a web designer, um, but where else were you working? Like, what else happened after that? Well, it's funny. I actually, I had worked, I worked as a web designer for a while, and I went to grad school, and I got set up um, sort of with tech and doing anything tech-related. And I, after the grad school change, sort of mid-misery mid um, in divorce, I decided I maybe would want to teach, except my approach was, well, what I'll do is I'll teach. I don't want to teach, or I don't think I can teach at this point, 
uh, anything more than, than say, uh, seventh grade language arts or high school English. And so in the meantime, I had this sort of idyllic notion that I would teach seventh grade English for a little while, um, which is just, it's just a hard, thankless job um, when I was living in Central Florida. I, I just, and I basically, at that point, my, my marriage was disintegrating, and I bailed on that. Um, another proud moment in history. <laughs> Sorry, kids. <laughs> Sorry, kids. They were great kids. That's the thing. Like for the most part, they were great kids. But I had 176 students. Oh God. Um, I, you know, and I people talk about you know I had two different preps for 176 kids. The preps weren't the killers. Just like you assign a paragraph to 176 kids, you got to read. You're hosed, man. Yeah, no. Yeah, if you if you if they do the work, if 60 percent of them do the work, you've just assigned a novel. Um, the sort of postmodernist novel of 150 or whatever paragraphs. Yeah, I get it. Um, I taught too. I mean, I, yeah. I was teaching classes of like 35, 40 students at the time, and they would hand their blue books in or hand in their essays or their short stories or whatever it was, and it was just like a feeling of dread because you you know you have all this prep work and you're doing all this other stuff, and then you got to go home and you've got to read hundreds of pages yeah. and like be the editor and be redlining stuff and writing comments, and it's like it's an enormous amount of work. So I, I yeah. Kinda, yeah, and then it was one of these things where, you know, you're, if you're in grad school and you're reading, like, workshop, you know, stories, you're trying to be conscientious and you're trying to provide some value in your comments. And if you try to do that for seventh grade paragraph, I mean, it's a train wreck mentally to try to make the switch from, like, well, let's talk about literature and, and its effects and how you're achieving these effects in this piece, and then going to someone who maybe can't write a sentence. And you can't shut off the critical faculty. It's just impossible. You end up commenting way too much on something that, that it just it just blows your mind, that, that the idea that you could get through it. Um, so I, I bailed on that, and uh, what I ended up doing is sort of during the web design stuff, I ended up being more and more of a kind of a marketing monkey for writing. I was doing copywriting and and proposal writing and so forth, and that led to working for what amounted to a brand management firm. Um, well, and let's talk which, about brand because this is such an ubiquitous term and like everybody is a brand these days and you have these like evangelists from the world of marketing who advise people to treat themselves as brands and especially as writers because you're kind of an individual entrepreneur. I mean, you can be viewed that way. Um, you know, you've got to go out and create your online identity and there's all this stuff and all this talk and after a while, I just want to start like banging my head against the wall. Like, talk about that. Yeah, it doesn't take long. I mean, I, the thing is, is it's yeah, it's it's miserable. I think it's antithetical to art. I mean, I really do think this notion of. I mean, I get the idea that a lot of writers feel like you know they're getting their heads pumped full of this. You know, you need a platform. You need to you need to be doing X and Y. And and you know, that's really not about art. That's about about pimping a product, which is theoretically your art. You know, you got to be a salesman for your art. You are your brand, control your brand, you know. And that stuff, I mean, it's bad. It's bad for the creative process. It's corrosive. And, you know, a lot of companies, they invest a lot of money in, in getting you to create a story or tell a story for their, um, for their particular brand, whatever it is, you know, their, their logo, trademark, brand position, the whole nine yards. Um, but it's it's a slippery business. It's it's um, yeah, it's sort of intellectualized prostitution in a way. The, the but yet, on brand. But yet, okay. And then just to flip it, because I go back and forth in my head about this. Like, I can I can um, cry foul, and I can talk about how much it depresses me, and I can talk about how I want nothing to do with it. And yet, like for this show, for example, like I have a logo, 
and I'm mm-hmm. on Facebook and I'm on Twitter. And, uh, you know, if you ever, if you're a writer, I have a book coming out, you have a book coming out, you, you get out there right. and you try to plug it. And it's like, you know, whether we like it or not, we are functioning in this capacity to some extent. And so, and, and there's also, I think, I think it's defensible to be a writer or an artist and to say to yourself, well, listen, if this is how I want to make my living, uh, this is how I want to spend my time on earth before I die. I've got to be able to feed myself. And so in order for me to be able right. to feed myself with it, I've got to get out there and let people know about it. And so, you know what I'm saying? Like that, that train of thought makes some sense to me, but it's like, how do you strike a balance, you know, before all of a sudden you become a marketing monkey for yourself and you're not really, you know, it can muddy the process pretty quickly. I think it can. And I think part of it involves, I think to the degree to which yourself, if you begin self-censoring what you create, because you're thinking about how you're going to market it and what your voice has been so far, you're host. I mean, if you, if you begin like, all right, my next book is going to be X. And if you start looking at the market and saying, well, vampire this and zombie that, and how could I stitch something together I could sell, then you're hosed. I think you're hosed if you begin to, if you begin to confuse the act of creation with the act of promotion. I think you're in a really bad spot. I mean, you know, yeah, it's, it is. I understand that notion, that sort of contradiction. You know, like you see people who've made a platform for themselves and they move their art that way, and that's good, right? In theory, you need to capture someone's attention. Um, but the thing about branding on like the corporate level is that it's, it's, it's not really salesmanship. I think you're talking more about salesmanship, like selling yourself, selling your product, like being a good representative of your, of the thing you made to put it out in the world. But in the branding side of things, it's much softer. It's much more, what is the, what space in the consumer's mind does this brand occupy? And it's, it's a dark, dark art. <laughs> of which you are an expert. <laughs> no, no, uh, no. Which I am, which I, which I am being rehabilitated on a daily basis. No, it's. Um, is your book? It's, it's, I was just going to say, is your book uh, therapy? Do you know what I'm saying? Was that a part of it? Yeah. Was it kind of an exorcism? Yeah, it's kind of an exorcism. I mean, I, it is. It's a. It's. I mean, it's a confession. You know, I, you know, I have traded in language that is meaningless. <laughs> and that's that's a great sin. If you, I mean, I think if you're a writer and you and you basically have figured out a way to use words to say almost nothing for large sums of money, you are a necromancer, or you you are the devil, and you have some atonement to pay for. You know, right? It's yeah, it's grim. That part's grim. Um, but yeah, so that was that's part and part and parcel of that whole experience was sort of fixing it. Plus, my dad died before before I wrote the book. Um, and so there was this process of grief getting through it. So um, the book, so the book helped that way too. It did. It did help that way. Mm. Um, cause it, yeah, it did actually, because there are these sort of imaginary conversations, um, which are useful, I think. Well, I think writing, um, I mean, my, my, like my first novel was, I guess you could call it a grief novel. And like, I don't think there's anything healthier than writing whatever it is whether you're writing a book or you're just writing stuff down but i think it's a i think it's a natural reflex for a lot of people and it's obviously a natural reflex for people who are writers and then um i also think it's really effective you know Uh, i I guess you can do talk talk therapy is sort of similar it's just that with writing you're talking to yourself essentially but um yeah i mean what do you you don't know what you think until you write it right i mean like i don't often know how i feel until i've written something about it and sometimes it's two or two or three years and it happens to be a book um and yeah, I don't know, like beyond the publication of it, if that matters, sometimes most of the good has come from the act of creating it. Yeah, no, I, th- I think the great majority, you know, it's like as much of a struggle as it is, like 
the best part is the doing of the thing, you know, as opposed to like yeah. the, the aftermath or the presentation. I mean, the, those things have their merits, but it's really the act of creation that you wind up romanticizing at least down the road. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's this way for you, but I mean, frequently I don't know when I, when I start a sentence necessarily where it's going and it's actually only in the act of writing it that it reveals itself. And it's, it sounds a little, you know, hoodoo voodoo mysterious, but in, in fact, it's become, I've become more trusting of it to listen to it because if, if I start thinking I know how something's been locked up, it's, it's almost always bad. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Is, that, is it that way for you? Do you ever sit down and pencil you get three words on it and you don't know where you're going yet? Well, yeah. I mean, I think sometimes I can get too, like, like when I get locked up, a lot of times I'm trying to, like, uh, you know, get the structure to be too airtight. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? You get fixated on, like, how the different puzzle pieces fit and you, you sort of, like, sacrifice some of your intuition a little bit. And I think when, yeah. um, you know, I think there's a, you know, again, it's a balancing act. Sometimes it's a good, a good idea to have, like, a 30,000-foot view of your story and have an idea of how the thing fits together at a macro right. level. But I think, like, at the micro level where you're sort of in the weeds, you know, you have to be willing to follow your nose and you have to be willing to kind of trust and um, let yourself be blind or whatever. You know, I think there's something to that. Yeah, the blindness, especially. Yeah, I mean that's. Anyway, I mean that for me, that's been that's been different. I mean that notion of like going into it somewhat blind because you can't really trust what you think you know about what you're trying to say. Mm. Um, well, so you, were you write, were you write, were you working uh, other jobs while you were writing this, or did you like take some time off and move to San Francisco? Like, what's been? How did you get it done? Oh, I mean, it's funny. This particular book was. Um, it was written, it began very fast because I started it in November and with about a billion other people like decided, well, I'll write a novel in November. And I'd written, I had written, um, a novel before, you know, sort of a dreadful book. And then I decided, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to charge ahead on this one. And so I started it then and it went very, very, very quickly. And there was this sense in writing it. Well, this is something that like is pouring out of me. This is something that's, there are some demons being worked on here. And so it went, it went fairly quickly. I was working, I was freelancing, freelance copywriting, um, you know, basic like writing monkey work uh, for the most part. I mean, the internet has provided any number of writing monkey work jobs. Um, so that's what I was doing. Sort of, this was post. I had sort of quit the branding thing and quit the whole traveling all over the country and sitting in, you know, meetings and and that was all over. And so there was this process afterwards of just filling the funnel with money and watching it run out the other end while I wrote. <laughs> right. Which is usually, the, usually the way that it goes with creative writing. But, uh, yeah, yeah. So, but it feels good to, to be in print and to have this thing published. It's got to be gratifying, right? It is gratifying. I mean, I didn't know, I didn't know if the, if this book would be published. I mean, I'd written it and sort of set it aside and, um, had just really random way it became, it came to light, um, was sort of gratifying and seemed like a right thing. So, I'm super excited to see it out. I really am. Um, couldn't be more grateful, honestly. Awesome. Well, uh, I've really enjoyed talking with you, man. This has been uh, enlightening, and uh, I wish you the best of luck with it. I hope that it goes out and, and does really well for you. And uh, I, I assume you're probably writing other stuff now. Or are you are you taking a break in between books? Um, I've been writing. Yeah, this it's been done for a little while. So I've been I've been throwing it against the wall, writing new stuff for since I finished it um, and let it cool. Uh, there's another book that's just sitting going nowhere right now and i've had a number of 80 page starts that that just don't they haven't lived and so i'm working on something new right now by hand which is kind of weird i've never done that before yeah um 
Yeah, it's it's a, it's a different process. Just changes things. It's also more portable, a little more, a little easier to do. Sort of out of the blue, sit down fifteen minutes, get something in. Sure. But yeah, I'm still working, so that's I think that's all we can do. All right, man. Well, best of luck with it, and uh, thanks for taking the time to talk with me. Thanks so much, Brad. And it's great to be on. All right, folks, there you go. That's the show. That is the episode. That is Eric Raymond. Go get his novel. It's called Confessions from a Dark Wood. It is available from Sator Press. You can find Eric online at ericraymond.com. You can find him on Twitter at Pontius Labor, Labar. Uh, just look it up. You can track him down. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music, the uh, rock and roll, transitional music, the theme music, etc. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Uh, me, I'm going to see some movies this weekend. That's my uh, That's my goal. I'm going to see a lot of movies in the month of December. Uh, I feel like this is a good month to experience the cinema. And I want to make a recommendation. I saw the Silver Linings Playbook, the new one from uh, David O. Russell. Great movie. Uh, It's a feel-good movie. It's a screwball comedy. I really enjoyed it. And basically what will happen is that you will spend two full hours rooting for Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence to fornicate. That is what it's about, and it will warm your cockles. Do you hear me? It will warm your cockles. Please remember that Renoir suffered from extreme rheumatism and congested lungs, but in the end died of a heart attack, and that Herman Hess died in his sleep at the age of 85. I think that's it for now. Uh, I'm pretty much all out of things to say. I'll be back again soon, uh, and you know, I'm just going to keep doing this. I'm just going to keep making podcasts. I'm going to provide content. I am a content provider, ladies and gentlemen. I make high-quality content. Do you like my content? Is my content enjoyable? 